We actually screw up. So we, we should... Uh, yeah, okay, never mind. Anyways, <laughs> one, day we'll, out. one day we'll do a blooper <laughs> show, and it'll be mostly my voice. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to AT Banter, the podcast where we discuss anything and everything regarding the world of assistive technology. With our hosts, Steve Barkley, Rob Minot, and Ryan Fleury. Now, let's banter. And hey, and welcome to yet another episode of AT Banter. It's another week. It is September. Finally. Yay. Unbelievable. Winter's here. It's not here yet. Pretty quick. Snow ain't falling. It is up on the mountains. Well, Whistler. Whistler, sure. yeah. yeah. It's not that far. But it, it certainly feels fallish today. Yep. It feels like November right there today. Oh, stop you whining. <laughs> Whiners. It's beautiful. Cooper, it's it? beautiful. It's getting up to 18 today. 18. 18 degrees. Wow. Is it really? That's Celsius, folks. That's right. Yeah. In case you're listening from the excited states. Speaking of which. Yeah. Isn't it two months till the election, isn't it? November? Ooh, it is. Yeah. Oh, oh wow. it's going to be a barn burner, this one. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's kind of like voting for Mon Mothma or the Emperor. It's... <laughs> It's a Star Wars reference for Yes, it is. Okie dokie. Right. <laughs> have to get one in every episode. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so how was your long weekend? Mine was fairly uneventful, but it always seems to fly by. Yeah, three days never seem like all that much. It's almost cruel. Long weekends are almost cruel because it's just long enough that it's a little extra, but not long enough to really sink in yeah yep. and dragging your bum back to work on the uh tuesday is it's pretty hard it is, it is. but schools are back in now so yep. exciting times for the kids that's right ha -ha. <laughs> <laughs> so today uh later today we're going to be talking a little bit with sean marcelet from blind beginnings which is a local nonprofit organization here yep. catered to blind and visually impaired youth. We're excited for that. And they're doing some pretty exciting stuff. So it's going to be fun talking to Sean. Absolutely. Anybody got anything else? Any Anything interesting happen? Any thoughts, anecdotes, poetry? Mm, nope. No. Wow. Steve's got nothing? I can't. You didn't do anything this weekend. Did, well, how was the pod like? I played. I played video games. Oh, did you? What did you I play? Uh, Fallout. Yeah, Fallout Four. Yeah, I love building that settlement. Yeah, my my son, uh, he got me hooked on that, and yeah, it's now his fault. <laughs> <laughs> so, are you far in? Well, I'm up to about level fifteen, I think, and okay. uh, my my son's level seventy something. So, right, you gotta waste time. <laughs> I'm not I'm not catching up to him anytime soon. I love those open world games. I like collecting the weapons. Yeah? Yeah. Mm. Killing super mutants. Damn super mutants. Any robots? Yeah, there's oh, robots. There's tons. Is there? Yeah. 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 Speaking of which, we had... Did you get the email I sent you from I, one of our listeners? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah I did. We got an email? We, we got did. an email. Really? Yeah. About someone's favorite robots and a couple that we missed. Oh. Yeah. I wasn't familiar with them, but... Uh, Rosie from the Jetsons. Well, of course, yes. Yeah. So that one. Oh, sure. Yeah. And Rob Robot yeah. from uh, Lost in Space. Lost in Space, of right. course. Yeah. yeah. 
we did miss that. The other one, I, Riptide, was that that? Riptide. Was that that eighties sort of pseudo action series with the guys with the helicopter? Is that Riptide? I Don't couldn't know. tell. I'm you. gonna have to Google that. If, an eighties robot in any sense. Drawn a blank. Really? Yeah. Yeah. We'll have, to, we'll have to Google that one. And who sent that to us, Ryan? Her name was Marilyn. Well, I thanks, Marilyn. don't have her last name. Well, thanks, Marilyn. Yay, Marilyn. It's nice to know people are listening. It is. Yeah. We're not just screaming into a vacuum. That's right. All right. Well, we are uh, very happy to have with us as a guest today in the studio, uh, Sean Marsley, who is the founder of an or- a local organization here called Blind Beginnings. Uh, Yay. Thanks for coming in, Sean. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start off right at the beginning and tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Um, I grew up in New Westminster. I was diagnosed with RP when I was five years old. And uh, I didn't actually know that I was visually impaired, though, until I was 12. So my parents kind of decided that they would not tell me. (laughs) Um, They didn't want me to give up on life and they didn't really know how do you tell a five-year-old that she's going blind. So um, until I was 12, I was just a typical kid, a little bit uncoordinated, I thought, and a little bit clumsy, but was able to do most things that most kids could do. Um, And then I, as I was starting high school, realized that I had a visual impairment that was degenerative and um, sort of kind of went through that transition and uh, took a while to kind of come to terms with the fact that I was visually impaired, um, but my vision was deteriorating as I was kind of adjusting to that. And um, many years later, (laughs) here I am, and I started an organization to help kids that are blind and their families so that they can have sort of an easier transition. So are you totally blind now, Sean? No, I still, well, I don't really see an eye doctor regularly anymore, but I can see shapes and movement in my peripheral vision. So I don't have any central vision. It's kind of like looking through a really cloudy window. Uh, I can still see light. I can tell that the lights are on and um, some movement off to the sides, but not any real functional vision. Right. Now, now one thing that I note that you, you just glossed over there and actually you didn't even mention it at all is that uh, you're a uh, paralympian <laughs> she's a medalist no no i'm not a medalist don't start that rumor no no i think i think my best performance was sixth i won a medal but not at the paralympics oh, I see. Uh, okay. the world bronze medal at world oh, okay um yeah so actually i guess when i was 18 i started competitive swimming um and i I went to the Canada Summer Games. I was one of the first disabled athletes to compete at the Canada Summer Games. And that was kind of when I decided I wanted to go to the Paralympics. So I swam competitively competitively for six years, but didn't actually make the team. I was an alternate. And then a couple of years later, I entered a tandem cycling race just kind of for fun. And I won. And uh, I sort of, my, my Paralympic dream was reborn and I trained for a few more years and ended up going to Athens and competing at the Paralympics. So that was pretty cool. And I, I would say like competitive sport was one place where I wasn't embarrassed to be blind, um, being on a tandem bike or even being guided around the pool with my tapper who would like hit me on the head with this styrofoam ball. When I got to the wall, that was kind of how, you know, (laughs) to stop. Um, I felt proud because there was like being an athlete with a disability made me, uh, special in some way where just being a person with a white cane walking down the street kind of makes you 
not feel special. <laughs> I don't know. So I think being in competitive sport as much as, I mean, it was positive in lots of ways because I got to travel and see places I didn't really ever think I would go and um, just be part of a team and be physically fit and active. Uh, but it also was one area where I wasn't embarrassed to have a disability. So let's, let's talk a, a bit about blind beginnings. Um, first off, why don't you tell us about how you uh, got started with blind beginnings? What, what brought it all about? Uh, I was working for CNIB uh, as a coordinator of children's services, and I felt like we just needed to de be doing more for kids and their parents in this province. Um, I thought there needed to be an organization that was just for kids, for children and youth. So I quit my job, and uh, I didn't know the first thing about running a nonprofit. I just was really passionate about providing services to kids and their families. Um, I know that if my family had had more support, when I was young, I probably would have had an easier time. So that was my motivation. And yeah, one step at a time, you know, it was like, let's find a name and how do we start a society and how do we get registered as a charity? And just uh, Blind Beginnings was born. <laughs> what are some of the services you offer? So we provide a range of services um, to children, youth, parents, and families. We have family camps, uh, summer camp programs. We have workshops. We have a youth leadership training program, which is kind of getting youth volunteer experience, presentation experience. They're working on projects together, and it's all really based around pre-employment, um, creating confidence workshop last, this past summer we took kids, part of the workshop was taking them to the mall and how do you pick out clothes if you can't see, how do you know, you know, that you look cool or <laughs> not cool? <laughs> uh, what else do we do with junior explorers clubs, uh, parent support groups, parent workshops. So really anything that will help the child be reach their potential and and help the parents support them so that they're successful do you interface at all with uh, educators you know obviously schools are a big part of what the kids are going through in the younger years so mm -hmm. how how do you um how do you connect with education? We actually, our best programs are the programs that we have teachers of the visually impaired involved. So um, the TVIs are part of our youth leadership training. They work at our summer camps. Um, they're helping out with the junior explorers clubs. And we definitely want to sort of bring some instruction to the kids without them realizing that they're learning something. So you know, at the Junior Explorers Club, sometimes we'll prepare food. So they're learning to get comfortable preparing food. Um, and they're getting some instruction on how to do that without vision. But they're just having fun making food, which they're often not allowed to do at home. Uh, and they don't realize that they're learning. So we'll also bring in mobility, um, have uh, the youth leadership program has a they have to work as teams. What do we call it? The mobility challenge and find their way to the restaurant where they're going to have dinner. And, you know, hopefully everyone gets to the restaurant eventually. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever lost anyone? Oh, just the once. No. <laughs> but that was when I was working for CNIB. So it's okay. <laughs> it didn't, didn't impact on this. this no, no, it didn't lose them permanently. It was uh, just a momentary forgot somebody in the bathroom. And it was my volunteers that the sighted volunteers that were supposed to be, you know, making sure they had everybody. But <laughs> now I'm extra careful. <laughs> yeah. Sound off. 
And now, so what age ranges do you, do you primarily work with? Primarily, well, birth to 19, but a lot of the kids um, in the young 20s are sticking with the program. So we had to create a youth mentor role within our youth leadership program because they weren't leaving when they turned 20. So um, I think our oldest youth is 27 now, and uh, we're actually looking at how do we kind of formalize the program for those young adults because there's not a lot for them either. So we're looking at next year doing um, sort of a leadership training part two, a residential program where they would live for five days in a home and they have to meal plan, go shopping for all their food, uh, shop within a budget, prepare their own meals, do laundry, clean, you know, learn all those life skills. Um, And that's going to be 18 to 25 years of age. So I don't cut anybody off at any point. Blind Beginnings is for kids, um, for people who lose their vision in their in their early years, though, like losing your vision before you're 19. If you lost your vision and you're 20, then probably CNIB is there to support you. But there's a big difference in having no vision from birth versus losing your vision once you've already kind of seen the world and know what things look like. And so that's what we're really good at is teaching kids, you know, concepts and skills that they wouldn't have gotten with, you know, they didn't have vision when they were learning those skills. So are there any plans to say expand in the future, you know, as your, as your first generation of kids sort of age out of it, it, are there plans in the future to maybe develop something an offshoot company even for mm-hmm. young adults? People ask me that all the time. Like you need blind middles or <laughs> blind, blind continuations. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I don't think so. I mean, beyond the kind of early twenties, um, I think we're going to start doing more career counseling kind of stuff for youth just to get them better prepared for looking for a job and stuff. But I feel like if we did expand, then we're just going, I mean, one of the challenges I thought working for CNIB was the organization supports people from birth to death and everything in between. And there is a big difference in, you know, losing your vision as a senior or in your later years, as opposed to being born without vision or losing it in childhood. And I really feel like that's what we're good at. Um, I really think if you support kids when they're young and support their families, then they don't really need a blindness organization in their adult life because they have all the skills and independence that they need and they, they have a network of support around them already. So I don't plan to expand beyond really kind of the young adult years. I suppose spreading your focus that, that broad can be, you know, a real hindrance as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, on our board, uh, 60% of the board has to be blind or a family member of a child who is or was blind. Um, and that means that everybody in the organization kind of understands what we're trying to do. And there's no fighting within on, you know, no, we need more money over here. Or we need more money over there. All the money is going in the same direction for the same goal. And it's just so much easier that way. And did you find your time at CNIB kind of informed a lot of the decisions that you made in starting it up? What I learned, I think, when I worked at CNIB was that parents just needed a lot more support. Siblings needed support. Um, 
school age kids weren't weren't getting enough support and it was just a case of more but because blindness in childhood is low incidence there's only about a thousand kids in bc that are legally blind birth to 19 um and there's closer to 18,000 people who are blind so the majority of the cnib clients are seniors or well, yeah, the majority are seniors. So it makes sense that they're going to put more resources towards the majority of their clients. And it's just that the kids need probably more support initially so that they don't need very much support later on. So I learned a lot working there and I actually really enjoyed my time there. I just was frustrated that, you know, I just felt that there needed to be more for kids. So I think having that focus and it be only for children and youth is, is easier how do you get funded? Uh, we're funded a lot of foundation grants, a lot of applying for grants. We don't actually have any funding that rolls over from year to year. Everything that we raise, we raise through our fundraising events like our gala um, or through foundation applying to foundations and not a lot of corporate sponsorship yet either. A uh, little bit of gaming money from the government. But again, that's a big proposal we have to put in every year and hope that they continue to say yes. So that has been... I had no idea I was going to spend so much of my time fundraising. Um, it's probably at least half of my time is raising money so that we can provide the programs that we're providing. And how many youth are in the program right now? Uh, we probably have about... 200 members um, from across BC. And so some of those are family members that, you know, the parents and the siblings are considered members as well. Um, but there's probably about 200 kids that are blind or, or partially sighted that are that have or are members now. Uh, some people are just on our mail list and they they eventually hopefully will come to a program but haven't come yet so the fact that we only have 200 and there's a thousand in the province means we haven't reached everybody yet blind beginnings is only eight years old so we're still pretty new and not everybody's heard of us yet so stuff like this is really important to get the word out so people know where to where to turn when when they have a child that's blind mm -hmm. you guys also offer day camp or not day camps but camps for youth what kind of activities do you guys do at the at these camps uh, so we have two camp programs right now. One is our family adventure camp, and that was just two weeks ago on the Sunshine Coast. And the idea is that we do adventure activities during the day, but then one meal a day, all the kids are responsible for cooking the meal and cleaning up. And there's about 60 people that come to camp now because it's a family camp. So the kids are helping make this massive meal, um, learning some skills. And we have teachers of the visually impaired helping with that. Uh, this year, the activities, we went on a boat ride. We did kayaking, archery, hiking, um, we did a scavenger hunt. Those were kind of the activities. And obviously, we always have campfire sing-along. That's one of my favorite <laughs> things. And then our other camp that we inherit, inherited two years ago was Camp Hornby. And it was started about 14 years ago um, as a camp at uh, the Tribune Bay Outdoor Ed Education Center on Hornby Island. So kids of all ages come. The younger kids usually come with their parents. The older kids come on their own. And there's a cabin for the girls and a cabin for the boys. And then the families that come camp on the property. And the kids go, they're put in smaller groups with, with kids their own age. And they... 
They do rock climbing, rappelling, kayaking, uh, the leap of faith where you climb up on this telephone pole and jump off the top, <laughs> obviously in a harness, but it's very awesome. Uh, what else do they do? There's a giant's ladder, which is literally a ladder hanging in the sky that was made for giants. And you are harnessed up and you climb up in pairs of two and sort of help each other. It's pretty fun. So lots of challenge, challenge by choice kind of activities um, where they get to basically just do the same kind of activities that any sighted kid would do, uh, but in a supported environment. And that's really fun, too. Right. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. We got to get Steve on the giant's ladder. Yeah. No. <laughs> I, don't, I don't do things involving heights. Close your eyes. Yes. Hold on you, then you'd be fine. I'd still know. <laughs> cool. I'm a major chicken when it comes to high points. <laughs> I think it is an advantage ladders. not being able to see, really. I think yeah. it does help in those situations. <laughs> I was at uh, space camp one time and I got uh, pressured into doing their uh, climbing wall by a bunch of blind kids. You know, they're the worst for peer pressure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so. And how'd that go? Uh, it, uh, it left me, uh, emotionally scarred, <laughs> <laughs> but you did it though. I, I did manage to do it. Yeah. Actually, the first time I did the leap of faith at Hornby, I climbed up to the top of the pole and I was like had my hands on the top of the pole but my feet were still on the little rings that you kind of use to climb up I had one foot on the top and I, I had to like bring my second foot up and stand up and I was terrified and I was stuck there for probably well it seemed like I was stuck there for half an hour but it was probably only five minutes and I said I don't think I can do this I think I'm gonna have to come back down and one of the youth was down below they were all ho holding the rope that I was harnessed to and this kid, Deacon, says, Sean, no limits, because yeah. we have Blind Beginnings has a no limits philosophy. And I'm like, crap. I, <laughs> I, Just this one limit. Yeah, I have to. I'm going to have to do this. And so that that wow. was what pushed me. And I stood up and jumped off and. Yeah, it was. Yeah, my hands are sweating just talking about it now. <laughs> That's funny you should say that because uh, the only reason I got up that climbing wall was because of a kid named Carmine. I think he was from New York, <laughs> and uh, he, I, I told Carmine because he was one of the uh, one of the instigators. He was threatening to uh, call me out if I didn't go up the climbing wall. And, uh, um, I, I said, okay, well, if I'm going to do this, I want the biggest, fattest belayers that you can put on the, <laughs> put on the rope. So, so he went and he gathered up the biggest kids and then, uh, I made it, I think about a third of the way up the, uh, up the wall and I just froze. And then, uh, I hear Carmine from behind. Okay. We've got four on the belay line now. It's like, <laughs> oh, okay. And that got me, that got me moving again. And then I got about two thirds before I froze again. And then I hear Carmine go, okay, we got five on the belay line now. <laughs> and I made it the rest of the way up, but I don't think I could have done it without uh, one Carmine badgering me into That's doing it. Hilarious. And then two uh, shouting encouragement to, uh, to get me the rest of the way. Uh, Good old Carmine. Good old Carmine. Mm -hmm. wonder what he's doing now. I don't know. Well, if he's in New York, he could be one of our listeners. You never know. <laughs> Shout out to Carmine if you're out there. <laughs> uh, you know what? I'm going to step back a, a, a bit and because I'm fascinated about, like, it must have been a, a really scary to, to quit your job and start up a, a nonprofit. I mean, what was that like? <sighs> yeah, it was scary. Um, I guess... You know, at some point in my life, 
I was actually a really big chicken when I was a kid. I was afraid of everything. I was afraid probably because I couldn't see, but I didn't know that at the time. So going really fast on my bike, you know, I was constantly putting my feet down or I was afraid of animals. I was just, I felt like I was just a chicken. And, and then something happened. I don't know. It was kind of like finding out I was visually impaired. I, I sort of believed that nobody expected very much of me. And that made me really want to make something of myself and challenge myself. And I wanted to be the best at something. And that's kind of, you know, what got me into competitive sport. When I was uh, 24, I, I had an opportunity to apply for an internship to work abroad. So I didn't know where I was going to end up. I just knew I would end up somewhere not here. And, uh, I got to move to England and work there for six months, which was probably the scariest thing I've ever done. So when it came time to quit my job, when I started considering that, I just, I don't know, I was really driven to, to make the world a better place. I wanted to, I just wanted to make something of myself and, and it just seemed possible. Um, I also went back to school at that point to get my master's in counseling at the same time as I started the nonprofit because I wanted a backup plan in case things didn't go well. Um, if the organization didn't take off, I'd have a career to fall back on. Um, and I was also still competing at the time I was on the national goalball team. So I was getting some funding from the government to train as an athlete. So I had sort of three things on my plate, uh, when I first started and, uh, those first couple years were, were scary, but I had some savings and I just, you know, I don't know, I guess I wanted to make a difference more than I wanted to be comfortable, I guess, <laughs> but it was scary. Do you, do you feel like your time as a, as a Paralympian and as an athlete in general sort of helped influence you in, in starting up be, just because of that, that determination that that drive that, that an athlete has to have? Yeah. Part, you know, one of the things I thought of when I retired from sport was that I had focused all of these years on being the best in my sport, you know, being the best athlete that I could be. And I felt like, I mean, I don't want to offend anybody, but I personally felt like that was kind of selfish that I was focused so much on me being the best. And I, I kind of wanted to turn around and focus on, everybody else and, you know, put that energy into how could I make, create something that would really help the kids, um, that I was working with. I just saw a lot of potential from the first, you know, moment that I started working with visually impaired children, I could see their potential and I could see what was needed, like, and what I needed. I needed to believe in myself and believe that I was capable when I was younger. And I just, I think my, my life would have been really different if I had had confidence as a teenager, um, and as a young adult, and I wanted to give these kids that opportunity and just so they could flourish. I think I've flourished, but it took me, I was like, you know, the ugly duckling story <laughs> just <laughs> took me a lot longer. Um, imagine what I would have accomplished if I had just come into the world with the confidence that I have now. So do you have any, um, any success stories that you're super proud of kids that have gone on to do great things? Hmm. So some of the kids, when I started, I mean, I've only been doing this, I guess, for about 13, 12 years. No, not even 10 years, say, with the kids that are here. So the, the young ones, there's one, um, one little girl that her dad 
came to CNIB when she was only a couple weeks old and the person at the front desk just, I happened to be in the office and I was available and I spent a couple of hours with this dad when he had just found out that his baby was blind and I was able to answer all of his questions, well, not all, but many of his questions and just kind of, I feel like that particular family, hes he was on the founding board of Blind Beginnings and he's still on the board and his daughter is now 10 and doing amazing, doing really well. But I feel like I had an opportunity to get it right with with that child because right off the bat, her parents got to meet a successful blind person that was normal, that was working, that was, you know, just doing anything that any other person was doing. So, um, she's only 10, so we'll see where, where she ends up. Um, a lot of the other kids were teenagers when I started working with them. So some of them have gone on, uh, one young lady is, uh, finished her degree now and decided to go back and be a teacher. And she's traveling the world, working as a missionary and just, doing amazing things, competed on the goalball team as well. Some of the kids are also Paralympic athletes or trying to be. Um, so yeah, there's, I can't take, I feel like I can't take credit for someone I met when they were 13, but <laughs> I can certainly say that I've influenced a lot of the youth. Um, many of them are starting to get jobs now. They're going on to university. Um, I just think that, you know, maybe they've, they've raised their expectations for what what's in store for them in the future. Nice. Yeah. Now, are there, are there other organizations in other provinces that are, are like yours? And did you, did you reach out to them at all when you were first starting out or were you completely on your own? Um, I actually was inspired to start blind beginnings, um, after meeting Daniel Kish, who's from California and he quit his job at a blindness organization and started world access for the blind. And they, he travels all around the world and teaches, um, people that are blind echolocation and self-directed discovery. And so I had found out that he's totally blind and he could ride a bike using echolocation which is a whole, you could do a whole podcast on echolocation, mm -hmm. but that's not a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> idea. Um, so I brought him to Vancouver. This is when I was working for CNIB to do an echolocation workshop for the families I was working with. And I also spent two days with him and I wanted him to teach me to ride a bike. And he did. And at the time I was, I was training in tandem cycling and I was kind of frustrated that, um, my, you know, I, I needed a sighted person in order to train in order to go out on the bike. So he taught me to ride a bike, which I have to tell you is not easy. Um, I learned how, but I couldn't go very fast and it wasn't something I could really use for my training, but it was one of those challenging things that, you know, one of the, another challenge that I set for myself. Uh, so, but he was the one who had the no limits philosophy. And he said, everybody has no, everybody has limits, but when you have a disability, often people decide your limits for you and often they're wrong. And he said that he thought people should choose their limits for themselves. And I just loved that philosophy. And I, I started to think about, I, I was fairly independent at that point, but I thought, well, how many times in my life have I decided I can't do something because either somebody told me I couldn't, or I just believed that I couldn't without even trying and maybe they're wrong. And he, one of the things that really made me 
believe in this philosophy was Daniel, when he travels to new places, he doesn't get assistance through airports. He just travels independently through the airport. And I actually said to him, we're allowed to go to an airport and not get assistance. <laughs> like they let blind people wander around the airport. I was quite surprised. Um, but he said, yeah, he just asks which direction is the gate. And then he heads in that direction. And then once he goes as far as he can, he asks somebody else and I thought, wow. And so I've never actually had the guts to try it getting on a plane because I wouldn't want to miss my flight. Uh, but getting off the plane, often I won't get assistance anymore because I don't like having to sit there until everyone else is off the plane before they guide you off. So I just follow the line of people. And when I get to the luggage carousel, I literally touch every bag as it goes along. And um, always somebody will say, do you need some help finding your bag? I'm like, yeah, actually. <laughs> I'm looking for a black bag. Can you help me with that? <laughs> I'm just kidding. But uh, so yeah, I sort of modeled well, Blind Beginnings is nothing like World Access for the Blind, except for we adopted the philosophy, but that was kind of the inspiration. And since then, I realized there is an organization in Ontario called Views, but it's more of a parent advocacy group. And there is something in Alberta as well, which I haven't gotten a ton of information on. I mean, I've been pretty busy just focused on British Columbia and trying to serve this province, um, but I don't think that there's anything really exactly like Blind Beginnings, um, to my knowledge anyways. And people in other provinces sometimes call me up and they have a child that's blind or there's they know a child that's blind and they've found us on the internet and they want to know what support is there for them in Manitoba or wherever they happen to be. And I kind of, you know, provide information and resources, but I don't really have anybody to refer them to most of the time. Right. You need to franchise. Yeah, I'm nervous to do that. I mean, I think also being, you know, being a national organization or a bigger organization, you have more rules to follow and more, it, it comes with its challenges too. So sure. I don't know if I want to do that. Um, I think that each, if we did, each province would have to be run separately, but sort of with the same philosophy, maybe, maybe that something like that could work. Because of the... How, how big Canada is and each province is. Have you like, do you have online meetings or seminars or workshops that people can join? We do teleconferencing for our youth program because kids come from all over the province. So they come to the training weekend and that's held in the lower mainland, but then they have to attend follow-up meetings and they call into those. Um, we're also trying to do a parent support group using Skype, uh, but for families that are more rural, because really they're the ones that are really isolated and need the support, but Skype has its drawbacks. So I, I'm, yeah, I, I think that there's a way to reach people more using technology and that's not my strength. <laughs> so, uh, but I don't know about nationally. I haven't, I mean, right now we're really just provincial. Mm -hmm. So we got Skype business and apparently that can accommodate a bit more but I've heard that it cuts out and it you can't be doing a support group where you're talking about you know grieving over the loss of your child's vision and somebody's crying and then they're cutting out and oh sorry we've lost you like it you just can't do that it has to be reliable so yeah and so do your programs run all year round yeah yeah, there's no summers off for me. <laughs> we so a lot of weekends and evenings, obviously, because kids are in school and parents are working. Um, so most of our workshops take place on weekends or evenings, and then our summer camp programs. The youth leadership training is usually a 
a three day program in the spring. Um, but yeah, it's, it's pretty much ongoing and we're in the office Monday to Thursday. And, uh, so people can always, you know, we're always there as a resource for people to call. And I saw on your calendar, you have an event coming up in November. Can you tell us more about that? Oh, yeah. Blind Beginnings has talent. So this is a fundraiser that the youth have taken on. It's part of the youth leadership program is to plan this this talent event every year. And it's a fundraiser. So um, it historically, <laughs> it, well, I think we're, this is our third year, but it was a competition. So Blind Beginnings has talent. Uh, people who were blind of all ages would compete. There were judges and uh, obviously a winner. Uh, we've decided to change the format and make it more of a celebration of talent. So people will be performing, but it won't be a competition. But we also want to showcase talent around the room. So if people have done art or writing or poetry or sculptures or whatever their art is um, or whatever their talent is, we'll have it on display around the room. And then if you have a performance talent, then you can perform as well. And we're we're just sort of waiting for people to to sign up. So if you're blind or visually impaired and you have a talent, doesn't matter how old you are, you just have to become a member of Blind Beginnings to compete, which is $10 for an individual membership. Um, and uh, and then you can join the show. If you are, we're also opening it up to um Multiple people can perform together. So if people like a duet or, or a small band, if you you know want to do something with somebody, then then you're allowed to do that. When it was a competition, it was kind of one person at a time. So it should be really fun. Um, but yeah, the youth are responsible for organizing the event and finding the talent and selling tickets. Um, we're looking for spon some sponsorship for the event. If anybody wants to, to be a sponsor, we definitely appreciate that as well. So it should be really fun. Uh, now, are, are you are you always developing new programs? Uh, yes. Um, I'm hesitating because in the beginning, the first couple of years, you know, I had a million ideas and tried to do a whole bunch of things all at the same time. And <laughs> I think that we sort of look at it as we have four core pro programs, children's program, youth program, parent program, and family program. But within that, there's a lot of variety and things are always changing. So our youth leadership program has kind of run a certain way for a number of years. And now we're bringing in this intensive life skill, you know, live for five days. Um, we also want to start doing individual career counseling with the youth that are in the program. Um, so things evolve from where they are. But uh, if if I feel like nobody else is doing it and I think that it's important and it can benefit the kids, then I definitely am willing to entertain the idea of how can we make this a program. So it sounds like you've got a lot on your plate. It sounds like you're fundraising, you're developing the programs. Like what's your, your day must be just <laughs> she's a wife she's a mom <laughs> i'm a mom yeah I have the little boy's gonna be three next week um yes i my my yeah there is no it's funny when people ask me like what's an average day look like for you well it really varies um yeah i'm sort of the face of blind beginnings too so sometimes i'm out you know meeting with donors or networking with other professionals or um just at events, but then I'm also reviewing grant applications. I'm, I'm creating programs. I'm the still the one that's facilitating the majority of our programs. We have a, another part-time program person now that's assisting me, which is awesome. Um, 
I'm hoping that having another person on staff to do some of the programs here might mean that I can reach other parts of the province. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very busy, (laughs) but I love that. I love that there's lots of variety in my job. Um, it's very rewarding as well, you know, working directly with the parents and the families and watching that transition take place when I've got parents with really young children that come forward and they're just devastated and they can't see the potential, right? And then over time, as they kind of become immersed in our community, they realize that, okay, that things are going to be okay. And their child is still going to have a meaningful life. And when I can see that transition take place, it's, it's very rewarding. And it really makes all the other grinding work that I do worth it. And so are you excited about the Paralympics? Well, I'm, I am excited, but it's not really televised. I was pretty hooked on the Olympics, actually. I was watching it all the time, and I just love that no matter what time of day, you could turn on the TV and watch some competition. I think that's pretty awesome. And unfortunately, the Paralympics is not, you know, there's not the exposure that there is. But I do have, you know, friends that are competing, and I'm rooting for them. And yeah, go Canada, go. <laughs> I thought there, so. CBC. I thought CBC was televising. I think CBC usually does a little bit, but nothing to the amount that they do for the regular Olympics. And I think AMI is going to do some as well. Oh, maybe. Yeah, that's possible. I know when I competed, there were two. I think two four-hour blocks of televised Paralympics that happened after we were all back home already. Yeah. So sometimes yeah. there'll be a special where they kind of showcase the highlights mm. and there was one little blip of us on the road race that was, <laughs> that was shown, but, um, there might be some stuff online too. I know goalball is not being covered and people are very upset about they that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I don't, I guess I just assumed there wasn't going to be very much coverage. I haven't actually looked into it, but I hadn't thought of AMI. They they must be covering some of it. Yeah, it's ridiculous that they that they wouldn't yeah. cover it. I mean, it's so yeah. easy to have you know online distribution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's There's disappointing. Just no excuse. Yeah, and it's pretty. I think personally that it's pretty fascinating to watch people with disabilities competing. Some I know when I was cycling. Um, the, the sighted pilots that came with us to compete were kind of blown away by you'd see cyclists with one leg or one arm or one arm and one leg riding on the track. You know, that's that's pretty ballsy. Absolutely. <laughs> I don't know. Was, was that word okay? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, oh, we said much worse. Okay. I, I went up to uh, Whistler to watch uh, the the uh, skiing in the uh, in the Paralympics oh, when they were yeah. here and. Uh, um, you know, I was there to cheer on uh, Vivian Foray, mm-hmm. and uh, I saw some of the other uh, skiing events. And the one that impressed me the most was the um, uh, the paraplegic uh, sit skiers. Sit skiers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Those guys are crazy. <laughs> yeah, they're absolutely crazy. And if you're into a sport where you like to see things crash, you definitely yeah. want to watch this sport. <laughs> so those guys have some absolutely terrifying wipeouts. Yeah. Well, wheelchair rugby too, right? They're just crashing into each other and knocking each other out of their chairs. And I mean, who wouldn't want to watch that? Is that that the same as Murder Ball? Yes. Okay. Yeah, Yeah, that is crazy. That was, and that's such a great documentary. Yes, it is. Yeah. So I I think that if, if, yeah, the able-bodied world kind of had a better understanding of disabled sport, they would want to watch it, but because they don't get the exposure, they don't really know what they're missing. So, yeah. Yeah, I would love. I've never seen goalball played, but I would love to see it. 
Oh, well, you can also go on YouTube and look up goalball games, international competitions and stuff just to get an idea. But it's pretty awesome, especially at the elite level. It's very fast paced, fun game. And they're crazy. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> Who throws themselves on the floor like in, by choice, right? In front of a weighted ball that's yes. traveling at you yes. at 70 miles an hour. <laughs> it's really fun. And it's one of the only team sports where everybody is blind. Everybody wears a blindfold. So I, I love, I mean, when I was cycling, I was still reliant on a sighted person to do my sport. Um, but in goalball, you're, you're kind of on an even playing field with everybody out there, which I really love that about the sport. Is there any reason why they hold the Paralympics so long after the regular Olympics? Like, is there any reason why they couldn't just have it like literally days after? Um, I imagine they kind of have to clean everything up and get ready for the next crew coming in. They probably have to maybe put in ramps in places where there aren't any or I don't really know the answer to that. I know they can't do it at the same time because it would just be it would just go on way too long. Right. Um, but, um, yeah, I don't know. It, I think it starts two weeks after the Olympics finishes. So I'm guessing that it's just time to kind of get ready again for this whole new slew of athletes coming in. Yeah, I suppose venues need to be retooled. And mm -hmm, I think so. But it is kind of unfortunate because the city itself often forgets about, you know, okay, it's over. Like, it feels like it's over, but the Paralympics hasn't actually started yet. So... Hopefully, they're still ready yeah, <laughs> and excited. I, I, I think so. And I think even, you know, people in general, viewership, I mean, they're, the Olympics are over, they're burned out on them. And then so two weeks later, when the Paralympics start, nobody's really paying all that much attention mm -hmm. to it. Yeah. Know? And that's probably part of the reason why they don't televise as much of the Paralympics, because they would have to have their film crews all sitting around Stay for there. two weeks. Yeah. You know, that's a that's a pretty major expense for any any mm -hmm. network just to have them, you know, waiting around. That's true, yeah. I mean, you'd think that maybe it might even almost be worth it to have it like the Winter Olympics where the a year following the mm. regular Olympics, they just have it as its own event as as opposed to attack on to the Olympics. Yeah, I don't I mean as a as a former Paralympic athlete, I thought it was pretty awesome to go to be in the same village and to eat the same food and to compete in the same venue. Like, I don't know if it would feel the same if, cause if it happened a year later, does it even have to happen in the same place? Like, I don't know. I think it would lose well, something. True. I don't know what the answer is. Some people say we'll incorporate them together. And, yeah. I would think that would make way more sense. But then because there's so many classifications in disability, so it's not just a person in a wheelchair, you, depending on where your spinal cord injury is or, you know, what your disability disability is you're going to have many heats of the same race sometimes or it's it's really hard it's hard i think if they incorporated them a lot of athletes wouldn't get there and it would sort of be the the top end of you know the i don't know <laughs> the ones with the least amount of disability would maybe be invited but probably not everybody or it would be have to be a month long i'm okay with that yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I'm willing to have sport on my TV for a month. Yeah, that would be Oof. cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this year was really hard to find anything. I found CBC's broadcast pretty horrible. Really? Yeah. We had a hard time finding any coverage. Mm. Well, just be glad you weren't NBC. NBC was just yeah. horrendous. A lot of people complained about it. Hmm. 
which is which is crazy. It it you know in a, we're in an age where we could literally have hundreds of channels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you could have had all the content right there at your fingertips. Whatever whatever event you wanted to watch, you should have been able to to watch Tune it, into it streaming live on on the internet. I think it's different in other countries. I know when I was in Athens competing, it was on the TV there constantly all the time. And actually, some friends of mine just told me in the UK, the Paralympics is televised daily during the Paralympics. Mm. So it it depends where you live. Right. How long did you play goalball for? Uh, Well, competitively, um, four years. But I was... I played for years, sort of while I was cycling and swimming, I was always playing goalball, just more on a, you know, going to nationals and stuff, but not actually on the national team. In I had some coaches that didn't really want me to play goalball when I was doing other sports because it can be, you know, a little physically demanding. Um, but uh, once I retired from cycling, then I was able to focus on goalball and it was... So about four years. So out of the three, which did which event did you enjoy the most? Uh, goalball. I guess it, yeah, because it was the, you know, everybody's blind. There wasn't any sighted assistance required. Um, when I was swimming, I was swimming with, well, when I started, I had to swim with 12-year-olds. I was 18 because... <laughs> <laughs> that's the speed that I was at as an 18 year old, just starting to to swim competitively. And then I gradually got to swim with people my own age. And then for a while they put me in a group with, um, everybody else in, in my club had cerebral palsy and I was the only one that was blind. And that was kind of, they put everybody with a disability together. They just all happen to have the same disability. And so I was physically faster than them in the water, but I couldn't see them. So I was constantly swimming on top of people, which also was not so fun. And then when I went to university, I swam with a master's swim club. And so everybody was sighted again. That was a bit better, but a wide range, like master's swimming is over 20, but a lot of people were in their forties or, you know, so it goalball was somewhere where I just fit in. <laughs> I was I was playing goalball with people that I liked that had the same disability that I did, and I just found it to be a lot of fun. That's also a team sport, I guess, which is very different than it is. Yeah, and I mean tandem cycling. I guess you could argue you're a small team, and I enjoyed the cycling too. But it is it was a lot of training on my own. I couldn't ride with my pilot every day, so it was a lot of riding my bike, like hooked up with a forget what to call it now anyway you you clip the back wheel in and you can ride inside and oh, me, yeah, right. me a tra- and the right trainer yeah, yeah yeah um me and the tv <laughs> or the loud music by myself a lot of the time and the thing with cycling i was the only female in canada competing in tandem cycling at the time so even when we went to nationals we were racing against the men because there were no other w- women and when we competed locally in, in local races we were the only tandem so it just there was not a lot of opportunity to really compete and feel like i was racing against my peers so that kind of had some some downfalls too but goalball kind of was the best of everything now, do you know, has that changed? Are there, are there more um, female tandem bikers these days? I, I think that it's pretty much, seems like there's always just one or maybe two women in Canada. I know somebody that's going to the Paralympics in Rio who's doing tandem cycling. She used to play goalball. I think she might be the only female representing Canada. Um, I'm not 100% sure, though. I'm, I've kind of lost touch with the cycling world since I retired. 
would you have any advice for somebody out there right now that's that's in the position that you were in eight years ago and is thinking about breaking away, quitting their job and starting up a nonprofit, what would, <laughs> what would be the piece of advice that you would give them other than don't do it? <laughs> um, come work for me instead. <laughs> no, I, 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 I was really lucky in that I was training. So I had some income and I had some savings and I had a backup plan. Like I was, it was a risk, but it was a pretty cushioned risk. I feel like, um, you know, don't, I know my family was really worried. It's really hard to, it's hard to get a job when you're blind. And I had a job with benefits and a pension and I gave that up and people thought I was just absolutely crazy. But I do think that I'm really, really lucky to be doing a job that I love. I love going to work. Sometimes it's easier than being home with a toddler. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, you got to follow your passion really. And And if it's rewarding and it makes you happy, then I really believe, you know, people often ask me, well, what kind of jobs can blind people do? And I think that find something you love and you will be successful. But if you try to be pigeonholed into something because of your vision loss, I don't know that that's necessarily the right way to go. So, you know, people say, oh, go work for a bank because they like to hire people with disabilities. And maybe there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with working for a bank if that's what you're excited and passionate about. But I don't think you should go there if you, if you don't want to do that kind of career. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I just think do something you love, do something you're passionate about, and more than likely you'll be successful. So when you started out, like what was your, what was your most valued resource? Like what, what really... Google. (laughs) How do you become a society? Literally, I I found Charity Village. They're pretty good resource for um for managing nonprofits. I, yeah, like I literally brought together a bunch of parents of blind kids and youth to initially ask them what services do you want to see for your kids in this province and that was sort of the backbone of what we were going to provide through blind beginnings i had ideas of what i thought but i didn't want to just make it all up based you know on what i wanted so the families have been a great resource to me um and the internet and and I I know some really amazing professionals in the field too some teachers of the visually impaired that are you know very knowledgeable and very passionate about the work that they're doing very committed um, and they've helped me sort of develop our programs as well so it's a I'm I I think that I belong to a really amazing community um, and uh, yeah we're gonna turn things around for the for the kids of tomorrow excellent. <laughs> For the car mines of tomorrow. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I do really want to go to space camp, though. That's on my bucket list. <laughs> oh, it's a hoot. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we'd like to, of course, thank Sean for coming in. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. We have an email address. We do. It's true. And it's atbanterpodcast at gmail.com. You are getting Woo-hoo. good at that, sir. I, I only heard it about 375 <laughs> times now. So. <laughs> we also have a website. It's www.atbanter.com. And you can find us on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. And anybody out there who wants to get a hold of Sean, um, we'll, we'll link to Blind Beginnings in the show notes. We'll have all our contact information. If you're interested in a program, you're interested in giving them some money, anything at all, 
feel free to reach out. But reaching out with money is better. We like money. (laughs) 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 Means I can focus more on programs. So, yeah. Ryan, what do we got uh, going on next week? Next week, we have a guest from Blind Alive. They design fitness programs for people who are blind and low vision. Oh, nice. Mm -hmm. Where are they based? In the U.S. That's as close as I can get right now. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, until next week then, I've been Robin O. And I've been Ryan Flurry, And I remain Steve Barkley. And we will see you guys next week. Thanks for listening. Ciao. Mean. Yeah, con Dios. Shalom. Hasta la vista. Sayonara. Hang ten. <laughs> bye bye. <laughs> 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 This podcast has been brought to you by Aroga Technologies. Visit Aroga Technologies online at www.aroga.com. That's A-R-O-G-A.com. Music provided by bensound.com.